It is episode three of the Alan Wake Book Club. Today we'll be talking about Ransom. Uh, I'm Lance. You go first. I'm nervous. Oh, I'm Ben. And I'm Adam. All right, so um, what did you guys think of this one? Like, Let's get some high-level thoughts before we jump into it. Oh, hot diggity. Uh, one of the best chapters in the game, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. I, I enjoy it a whole lot. Creepiest for sure so far. Oh, hands down, yeah. Interesting. I was, uh, I'll be interested to see uh, uh, why you feel that way. Okay. Uh, let's see. So let's jump. Let's jump right into our discussion. So I believe episode two ended with a call from Rose with Barbara Jagger in the background, and she said yes. she had all the manuscripts. Correct. So that's. That's kind of where we start. We start at the trailer park, where they're going to go see Rose Marigold in order to get the uh, the manuscripts. Look at you knowing characters' last names. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that a last name that they, they they explicitly give you? Like someone says it out loud because I think it might only be on her like door or on her like a uh, doorstep or something. Mailbox. Yeah, mailbox. it's the mailbox. Mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that she's named after two flowers. Right? Yes. I, I thought that too. <laughs> yeah, so you go in there. Um, I guess we were walked in by the the manager. Uh, so what do you, what'd you guys think? I mean, the Nick Cranky guy. Whatever, I don't know yeah. what to say, but I don't know if it's ever given. He has a name somewhere. Gandalf. Yeah, so I mean, he starts off, uh, you sort of get a lot of information, I think, or, or pieces of information that are going to be more useful uh, later on in, in the story uh, here, because you have Barry who mentions um, like that, that he read a bunch of stuff about uh, Thomas Zane, uh, who owned Diver's Isle uh, before it was, you know, sunk into Cauldron Lake because of the volcano eruption like 20 or 30 years ago. Does, uh, does he mention Barbara Jagger? Or he just says like he kind of has like a girlfriend. Right? He talks about Thomas saying a little bit. Uh, he mentions. So I think it's actually the the landlord that mentions Barbara Jagger because the landlord's telling you about uh, that people think that or the Indians thought that Cauldron Lake was a gateway to the underworld, um, yeah. which is like sort of an. It, it indicates that I think that there are there's more folklore around the island and and the lake than like you might previously expect. Um, quick side comes. note. Oh, sorry. Unless no, go, go ahead. So, according to my quick Google searches, um, just for the hell of it, I Googled significance of Rose. Apparently, aside from just meaning, you know, like romance and love and all that shit, it can also mean secrecy or confidentiality. And Ooh. then, Marigold uh, can symbolize cruelty, grief, and jealousy. But it is also called the Called the what? Oh, I think he froze. Oh no, did we lose him? Oh, oh no. He was taken. He was <laughs> <laughs> taken to the lake. Uh, so yeah, I mean, um, and I, really, I wish he was back. There we uh, go. Oh, oh yeah, so <laughs> where's, where's Marigold Man? Oh shit. It means the... 
I like went right through the whole thing. Okay, so uh, realism aside from meaning just, you know, like love and happiness. Oh, but did you already hear the rose part? I don't know. We're yeah. off. Okay, so marigold can apparently represent, or like, it's known as like the herb of the sun, according to Google. Uh, but it can also represent uh, creativity and. Balls, I already closed the page. Cruelty and something else that. Yeah. Hooray, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you also find the, the sailboat that the manager says landed there somehow, uh, presumably from like one of these darkness tornadoes that are like fl- flying around at night. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, kind of similar to like the plane that you find in the middle of the woods, like stuff that shouldn't be there but is there for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, but he also mentions that Barbara Jagger, uh, who was uh, Thomas Sane's girlfriend, um, died and or drowned in the lake. Uh, and also that Cynthia Weaver, who, you know, is the, the lamp lady, also knew him. Did you say she was a reporter, right? Uh, yeah, she was a writer. Or she was a reporter. So, And I she think that the landlord establishes Thomas Zane as a diver as well, right? Mentions that, I think. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So he he's doing a lot of exposition while you're navigating your way through this this trailer park, which is like just for me it's a it's a very cozy environment. Like I really like a like spending any sort of time in Bright Falls that isn't at night, uh, because like just the sunlight sort of filtering through the trees and like the ambiance is like really enjoyable. And also it's just like nice to walk around in the daytime, uh, sort of like exploring the universe. Yeah. Like the sheer amount of detail they put into everything as far as like world creation is just absolutely a joy to just kind of move around in. Agreed with that. Uh, trying to think, yeah, I mean, don't want to belabor the point of this, this part because it all kind of feeds into you talking to Rose and everyone acting like she's normal. Talks all creepy. Um, Okay, one, get, like, sorry, one, just one more thing, because uh, I was just I just found my screenshot that was talking about it. Yeah. Uh, everybody, or the landlord tells you about the the fact that Barbara Jagger is sort of like a local uh, like ghost story that they tell children. Uh, they call her the Scratching Hag. They <laughs> say that she comes for you in the dark. Okay. And they had the menu there, right? I know you point out the menu. You saw all these Easter eggs on the menu on the trailer. Oh yeah, they just had like a pretty good menu of puns. <laughs> yeah, I've never noticed right. that in any of my playthroughs. Like so granny claws, clam chowder, or uh, <laughs> cauldron lake deep fry plate, or my favorite, which is the zany chicken fried steak. Did see that one. Uh, so yeah, so so we go in there, and then uh, Rose gives a berry and uh, Alan some coffee. Then as he's drifting, she we don't see anything kind of weird at that point, right? It's not weird until after. They're just kind of getting knocked out, right? Uh, I think I can't remember if you see like a, sort of like a quick glimpse of Barbara Jagger because she kind of like pops in and out um, at I random different scenes. I think that Rose uh, does start like repeating speech that she used at the diner itself, like as you're kind of like underweight on consciousness, so. It kind of like helps clue you in a wee bit that things are awry. She also mentions being your muse. Um, That's right. That was kind of the, the promise, right? Yeah, which I think, which, yeah, 
is a great point because uh, you kind of get the feeling that Barbara Jagger will will promise people things and then that sort of gives her invitation to like possess them or whatever. Um, deal with the devil. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so then you wake up and it's like nighttime, right? Well, as you wake up, uh, you have like a dream, right? In your, in your, in your state. I think it's this. Oh, for Barry, she doesn't have anything. Yeah. Uh, hey, Al. Al, what's... Oh. Barry! What? What? Nauseous, hungover, only anger kept me going. I can't tell reality from dream anymore, but it seems I have an imaginary editor to help me. She's an old woman in a funeral dress. I call her Barbara Jagger. She's very strict. I I'm writing faster and faster. My manuscript is being heavily revised. The edits are getting very aggressive, and each day there's less of me and more of her. I hate it, but I know she's right. She promises me I can save Alice this way. She knows more of this than I do, about the complex incantation I'm attempting, about this place. She's worked with another writer under similar circumstances, Thomas Zane. The genre of the story seems to be shifting. It's turning into a horror story. I'm getting close. I can feel it. So there we had a bunch of stuff in the, the, kind of that one scene. Um, so he mentions a couple of things that like the darkness comes in his girlfriend's skin, like an Edgar suit. <laughs> yeah. Um, she, when she said, hey, I would promise to visit you and your wife. Was that when he got the key? Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. he picked it up in the diner, um, I think she said, I'll swing by and check on you or something like that. Something to that effect. Then this is the first time we hear her mention that she's the editor taking edits from her and she's helping him write and that the edits keep coming back and they're becoming like the notes are getting more and more. Yeah. So it kind of indicates like she's using him or like taking sort of more control over what he's writing. Cause you know, she has like a, a objective, like a goal and she's finding like how to use his ability to write, um, to take advantage of that. Yeah. That's, that whole part was for me was like super creepy. It was like, turn on the light, and then he's like, she's worked with another writer, Thomas Zane. So, at the same time, like the darkness took Zane as well. And he mentioned, you know, helping him write the incantation. It was very complex, so dark stuff going on. 
wherever that whenever that was recorded. Well, this pretty much like helps establish a lot of the mythology that plays throughout the rest of the game. Like you've gotten little hints of it before now, but like this is the first time that's pretty much like between the you know the trailer park running guy landlord. I don't know what the term for him is. But between him and like the flashback, like it's essentially just laying out like, all right, here's all the crazy shit that's happened that is relevant to what's going on and what's going to happen. Like, you know, more does get revealed later, of course, but this is essentially like finally just laying it all out there for you. Yeah, yeah you're getting more of a sense uh, of what the dark presence is, or more like where it exists. Um, there's a commentary from the from the developers sort of as soon as you exit the house but we'll um i want to talk more about the house but i'll talk about this commentary first uh where they say that the dark presence they want to get across the point that it's not human and that it is very strong but sort of has a very weak foothold in this world Uh, and it's sort of using alan to to expand its its power and influence here uh which i mean if you play control like you kind of get more of that vibe um like the idea that there are or there could be like another world i got the the not human part when you say it doesn't have a strong foothold i'm like first direction is uh, do they play later in the episode where it like takes over things and flies at you (laughs) jesus pretty strong to me it's getting stronger (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah well, it's also like very Lovecraftian too. Like it's, it's. I mean, there's obviously there's actually a lot of Lovecraft references in this chapter, um, but or episode or whatever chapter book club it counts. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's just a very Lovecraftian theme, which is really fun. Like you know, this other world or other dimension that's like kind of leading through in some ways, usually in dreams. Like dreams are very heavily prominent in a lot of Lovecraft writing, as they are in this game as well, because like the the messages are happening while he's asleep, right? Like, that's when Thomas Lane's able to reach out and talk to him, like, at the very beginning of the game, and then here as well. Yeah, so it's fun. Good connection. One thing I did want to talk about is how creepy Rose's house is. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Is it, like, her little like, homage? Yeah, like, like <laughs> if she has, you know, the the photos sort of plastered of Alan Wake behind her. Like, I've never known anybody who felt that way about a writer. <laughs> um, I mean, he's like attractive, but uh, still, it's just like plastered all over. Some of the some very strange photos too. And then well, she has a mobile over her bed, which is also really? very I did strange. Not that. I did not notice that. I'm trying to see if I got a photo of it. I don't think <laughs> I did. But yeah, she has like like a child's mobile above her bed. All right. I'm looking this up right now. Which, it almost feels like she's very infantile, or in the way that people talk about her and also, like, approach her. Like, she never grew up from high school or, like, middle school, even. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just kind of, like, personally, I just feel really bad for her. Cause she's she's like, just kind of used in this episode. It feels her. like she's constantly being taken advantage of uh, by, like, people in the story. Oh shit! She does have a mobile, yeah. Like a horse. Just one one thing that I found interesting eagle. also is on your way out, if you look at sort of the flowers that are outside of her house, uh, they're all dead. <laughs> were they now? Were they alive when you went in? I don't remember because I only got a screenshot of my way out. That's when I noticed them. 
So they yeah. might have been dead already, but it does sort of, if they were, then it probably indicates like there's something wrong in the house. Uh, mm-hmm. Sort of like where the darkness goes, like uh, life does not find a way. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought it was also just interesting because like, obviously like her name is two flowers and, and there are these flowers outside of her house, but they're all dead and, you know, she's an interesting character, but uh, definitely like weird. Now, another thing about her bedroom, um, like especially her shrine, because essentially that's exactly what it is. She's got the book in a place of prominence. She's got the candles. She's got the pictures. Like it's a straight up like magical shrine, right? Um, but I love that the pictures are actual photographs. They're not computer versions of Alan Wake. They're actual pictures of the actor. And I think I I, I don't remember them doing this in Max Payne, but like I think this is like the first time they really started integrating actual like you know footage or like whether it's video or photography into the game as well and this is the episode that i realized that a lot of like the alan wake like tv flashbacks are actually video recordings as well like they're not generated in game they're actual video yeah they Um, they do a really great job of incorporating that stuff without making without taking you out of the experience because i think it would be really easy to like see stills from real life and and have that like remove you from the experience but the way that they incorporate them is usually like really well done yeah same with the night springs those are real people too I I wonder if for just a game design choice, if it would have been like, man, if you did real time on that small screen, it just would have looked crummy. Because at that point, the resolution wasn't there. Adam put a picture of it. That he yeah. grabbed the mobile. Oh wow. <laughs> well, what do you have? That we have a. I guess you know. I'm not sure there's any significance, but you got a cloud, a sun, bird, horse. horse, and a star. Moon. Very weird. Yeah, very strange. But she's left more or less like catatonic uh, after this. She's there, and you kind of you just leave Barry. You're gonna go to his car, (laughs) and uh, then you see Jim Nightingale. Right, this is his first appearance. Oh, and he just comes out swinging. Oh yeah, (laughs) calling you all the author names. Probably one of the most annoying character traits of anybody in the entire game. Yes, it's just like because it's not even like he does it occasionally. It's literally every single sentence he uses yeah. a different author. I mean, like he's well read, so you got to give him that, right? <laughs> but what do you think, you're Stephen King? <laughs> to Lovecraft over there, Walking. Raymond Chandler. He references later. Yeah, like, just, it, it's nonstop. <laughs> Ugh. It was very, very, very confusing. Developers showing the players like, see, look, we did our research. Here are all the names you guys should know. <laughs> we know our shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so with that, you you escape. Uh, one one um, thing, I think before you leave the the trailer park, you can find a radio, and you uh, if you listen to it, it's the same guy who was uh, drunk in the in the jail. In the cell. Yeah, so, Walter. Yeah. And he talks about. Uh, I think he talks about being afraid that uh like he's having nightmares um, yeah that, that was a good one like and you know pat main also says like he can't sleep at all lately uh and walter specifically is afraid that like he's going to look out and like that guy who he got into a fight with who was presumably taken by the darkness is going to be waiting for him mm-hmm. uh, so that was just like a cool cool little conversation let's see and then then you escape uh 
And for me, this was creepy because I think at this point you didn't have your gun, right? This is like the whole thing where you don't have your gun, you're getting the flash grenades. Yeah, and I'll, it's worth pointing out, I think that the escape is uh, how it was predicted in the manuscript you got in the previous chapter. Uh, so it's just kind of like fun to have that more... Actually, I think there's like a couple things that happen. There's like the whole like getting drugged by Rose and then like the escape diving through the fence. Um, all of this is like set up at previous points in the game through the manuscript pages. So. Yeah, so it's fun that you sort of run into that. And then you're like escaping through the woods. Like you're running yeah. from the police for, for quite some time. Uh, what, completely, yeah, I think like Lance said, you're unarmed. Uh, you yeah. don't have your flashlight. But also like there are no enemies out there, really. Uh, instead, like it's kind of interesting because before where you would like run towards a source of light or you would run towards a flare because it would indicate safety from the darkness. Uh, now you're like trying to stick to the darkness to stay out of like the light. Yeah, uh, you run towards the light, then you get you know shot at by the police. So it was like an interesting reversal of that. Yeah, I guess for for me it was that, and when I was running, I was tired at night. They like to change where that goal is at like the last second when you hit a point. I ran to the cops a few times. <laughs> I know it was like not hard, but it was not very much fun. Towards the radio station. Yeah, yeah. Now on on the way to the radio station, like, you know, I'm not sure if you're gonna hit on this at all. I don't know, I'm assuming you probably will. But like, once the darkness starts interfering and like chucking cop cars and like the birds come out, um, I think it's before you get to the radio station where you have like one of those fire watch towers, right? Yeah. Um, well, it's that's, like uh, when you, when are you driving? So when do you get the car? It's it's pr pretty far after the radio station because the radio station yeah. leads to more of a police chase and then after that is when you finally get to. Uh... Sorry, you're right. There is a like a firewatch tower over there. Yeah, so it's it's when the helicopter is chasing you, you know, and it's like up there, it's got lights on you, shooting at you, and the birds come out and attack it. Uh, one thing that I don't think I had noticed before is that if you follow where the helicopter crashes and you go up in that firewatch tower and they've got the little like you know throw a quarter in binocular thing. I don't know what they're called. Uh, but it's Sucky's gas station in the background, which I had never noticed. But it's the one like you get picked up from at the end of the first episode. And uh, I just thought it's kind of cool that like it really does show how connected everything was, like this one kind of big world and like just kind of like seeing where it all started uh, at this point in the game. I thought it was kind of fun. I noticed that too. Uh, the gas station. I guess I didn't put the to connect the world like you did. That's a great detail. Uh, yeah, that that's all that I think I had for that wee bit. Okay. You're going to the the radio station. Do you see some like cop cars that have crashed, right? Uh yeah, there's like there are on. state there are uh officers that get attacked in the woods. Um mm -hmm. And they just get like taken out, and you hear like the you will regularly like run past the cars after, and you'll hear hear the the dispatcher be like, "What's going on?" Uh, but obviously, like you know, the FBI agent keeps blaming you as if you yeah. could you know take out like seven or eight officers by yourself. In the manuscript, do we know at this point what his motivation is? What he thinks of Alan Alan Wake, and I don't think you um, even find that out in the third episode. Uh, he yeah. comes in sort of swinging. Uh, drunk, obviously, like m multiple people mentioned the fact that he's been drinking. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, there are manuscript pages that hint at his frame of mind, which is kind of like he's worried about everything. Yeah. Uh, angry about a bunch of stuff. But uh, you never get any specifics like why he thinks that Alan Wake is such a threat. It no, seems like he knows something more than more than he's more than he's letting on, but yeah, I don't know if they ever clarify that throughout the course of the game, unless it's in some of the manuscripts from uh, Nightmare. But I don't, I don't feel like his motivations are ever really all that clear. Uh, but I, I mean, it's I'm probably misremembering something too. Uh, but also, according to my quick Google search, the Nightingale uh, has a long history with symbolic associations ranging from creativity, the muse, nature's purity, and in Western spiritual tradition, virtue and goodness. I just thought, like, the muse part in there is kind of fun. Yeah. Google be praised. So, I mean, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. You're right, we make it to the radio station. Kind of the next big set piece. Yeah, Pat Main's a good dude. Yeah. He yeah. In, what, invites Alan in for an interview, and immediately the cops show up. Yeah, I mean you're there for like four seconds. Like he yeah. offers you yeah. absolutely no help. Because <laughs> you immediately have to run away. Yeah, he like he like announces it over the over the radio. She was like, "Oh, well, Alan Wake just walked in," and blah blah blah, and the cops yeah. are like. Nerd. But man, it's in a really cozy late night radio station. Like he has oh, a great man. voice for it. But also the location is just on point. Like I remember when I was in I think it was high school, I went to a radio station for like a job placement thing. It was like up on top of this hill and it's like the same exact vibe. I was like, this is really true to life for me. Much nicer recording studio uh than I was ever in as far as or not recording, but what the hell they call it, I don't even know. Uh because I took radio in high school and was a DJ for KOHS Orm for a number of years. And uh, it's like a teeny little booth that smelled like just, you know, sweat and disgusting teenagers. So, yeah, definitely had a little bit of envy for, for the one in the game. It looked it looked very clean. Um, and you're right, Ben. There was, like, no shock of, like, why is this dude here? <laughs> like, hey, it's Alan Wick. See if we can get him for an interview. Yeah, like, anybody could have walked in. Like, all the doors <laughs> were unlocked. <laughs> no security at all. Bright Falls clearly, people feel pretty comfortable there. Which I mean, you think we... if there's disappearances and like this creepy shit happening, lock the door, man. Travel with a gun at all times. Like <laughs> they are way too trusting for people that live in a haunted town. And we, he's like the night owl, right? That's his like his name. Yeah. So he does the late night radio. Night owl on KBF FM. Yeah, so you're in there. Yeah, it's really short. I'm not even, I don't even recall the dialogue between those two. I mean, they pretty much say hi, oh, yeah. and then you're jumping out a window because he's getting shot at <laughs> again. Yeah, and Sarah Breaker's kind of like, hey, what are you doing? Like, why are you shooting civilians? And you can tell um, Nightingale's just, you know, crazy at this point. He's just, you know, he's out of just control. yelling about authors as you run away. Yeah, more author, more of this hot <laughs> author talk. Hey, H.P. Lovecraft, get back here. I uh, never headed to the railway station. This is where you start running into possessed objects for the first time, which I have like a real love-hate relationship with, because I like them in concepts and in theory. God, but they man, suck. they are so annoying. They startled the shit out of me because <laughs> I completely forgot about them when they first come in. 
Ugh, man. Like, the first one, the first one you see is when you're under the bridge, right? Is it the first possessed one? Well, I think, I think te- technically you run into like a door that's that's stationary, and that you have to open with one of those uh, floodlights, and it uses like the exact same mechanic that Gears of War used, where like you're boosting the light to. <laughs> it's a genius, a genius mechanics. Just like ooh, steal from the best. Why don't you just always leave the lights on higher? But um, yeah, like the first ones you run into, I think that are hazardous to you are under the train tracks, mm. and they're terrible. It, take, it yeah, takes I, so long to get across that bridge. I have been saving my batteries for so long. This whole time I was like, well, how how can I do this without spending a battery? You had to suck it up, spend some batteries. It's it's real brutal, and then like. Some you try to run away or something, and the physics get all wonky, and then they're just like bouncing off. You can never predict where they're gonna be. They just where they're gonna end up. Goddamn truck, because I mean they are sometimes actually trucks, I guess. But yeah, man, that's. I I I actually specifically made a note that I used seven batteries to cross the bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Which at the time I had like probably like ten, so it was most of my batteries. (laughs) Just like well, this is problematic. Uh, there is a manuscript you can find uh, either before you're crossing the bridge or around the time that you're crossing the bridge, uh, which mentions uh, Alan Wake when he used to write for uh, Night Falls. Night Springs. Night Springs? Yeah. Uh, so that's like the first mention, I think, of that. I, I thought that was something that they retconned or, or mentioned in the in the DLC sequel or like the, the arcade game sequel. Uh, but no, it's mentioned here. And he was sort of ashamed of his time writing. Well, I think that was like his first major start as a writer, if I'm not mistaken. Like, I think they yeah. that at some you know, point. Like I mean, all like, good writers, know. you're kind of, you know, you end up in all good horror writers, especially. Yeah. You end up yeah. in who knows where. Oh, yeah. Just wherever you can get published. Uh, I think it's after you... Yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, it's after you cross the bridge that you catch the next episode of Night Springs. Oh man! So uh, actually, I wanted to bring this up uh, specifically. Did you? So this one's great too. Did you catch the name of the uh, anthropologist, or whatever the hell he is, that's out there? I did not. So I I don't remember the first name, but the last name is Durlith, right? Which immediately like clicked for me because August Durlith was pretty much the guy that took over and coined the term Cthulhu Mythos. Like he was a, he was in a communication with H.P. Lovecraft, like because H.P. Lovecraft had this giant circle of like letter friends or pen pals, whatever that he would send stuff out to, and so August Sterlitz was kind of like a child protege. And then when Lovecraft died, um, essentially, he like Sterlitz took over to help write more stories in that genre, using some notes, like published some, like did a little bit of tweaking with some like Lovecraft's unpublished stuff at the time, and then published a lot of his own stuff. And he's the one that we had to thank for coining the term Cthulhu Mythos, right? Or, well, thank could be a you know, questionable thing, because there's a lot of controversy around him as well, that he just rid on the coattails of Lovecraft and the popularity in order to publish his own stuff and increase his own kind of like, you know, fame in the writing circle. But, uh, but yeah, so August Ehrlich, we have him to, th- to thank for a lot of the establishment of Cthulhu and modern pop culture that's really fun as a reference because this is definitely the most like uh lovecraftian of the night springs episodes which was going to be my next point yes it very much is 
uh, titled A Family Occasion. Uh, it has a, I think he was a journalist in the story uh, who goes to a small town to observe like, you know, a ceremony or like some kind of uh, holiday or, or festival they're observing. It's midsummer, essentially. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially midsummer. Uh, and then like within four minutes, he's dead. Yep. Uh, Mr. Derleth, you have well-pleased Nixie Perka, the dweller in the flesh. Your body shall host his thousand young, and all shall be glory. That was some creepy stuff. was pretty creepy. I also like the the moral that they gave at the end, because it was more directly applicable to this game, uh, which is like the Rod Sterling alike. Uh, says if you go looking for mythology, it may come looking for you. Oh yeah, that was a great ending. That. That's kind of like the theme of this game right now, right? Is uh, you know, there's all this stuff that's happened in the past, uh, and like you know, Indian mythology, local mythology, and the more you find out about it, sort of like the the deeper in you get. Now, so on your way to the transition, correct? I don't. I forget exactly where this was. Where do you get the call from, Alice? Uh, on the way to the train station. Yeah. Sure. So that, that's in this section of the game. I believe. So yes. Okay. I'm trying to. I'm trying to actually find the the clip of that. And I'm, I'm having some trouble with it. Um. I remember her voice changes. It starts off with like my stubborn husband or something, right? You're the most stubborn. Then it goes into. I guess her speech. I don't recall exactly what she says. Uh, if I remember correctly, it, it's something along the lines of... Uh, I actually have a, a clip of it, or a, a screenshot here that I'll link in the thing real quickly. Or, no, is that the wrong one? It might be. Yeah, I have another one. Hold on two seconds. <laughs> you hear me, H.P. Lovecraft? Yeah, oh, I can go. I swear to God. It's the worst. And the fact that he says H.P. Lovecraft rather than just Lovecraft, like, he's the full name, so that's, that's good, I guess. But if I was, like, you know, threatening to murder somebody, I would not really care as much about, like, making sure I get every detail right. So, yeah, she says she's afraid. Uh, something is keeping her in the dark. Uh, she mm-hmm. wants help. And she also says that she looks at him. Uh, she says, I look at you, Alan, and it's not you. Something else looking out from behind your eyes. Uh, which is the first indication, go. I think, that you're, you'll get of sort of like the presence of uh, the Alan Doppelganger. Mr. Scratch. That we'll run into later on. Um, but yeah, I believe she ends the, the call sort of uh, essentially saying like he needs to finish writing. Yeah, it's like you got to finish. Or you got to, is it something like you can help me? Which, you know probably means that either the call was not all her um, or was certainly probably not her idea uh, from wherever she's trying to reach you from. going to kill you if you're not on the right path. Um, so I had to hear it twice. But that first line she says is way different than her voice changes immediately. Not sure if that was intentional or if that was just kind of me reading into it. Um, um it is intentional and it is shown why. Uh, I want to say in like 
the next episode or the episode after. Okay. Uh, I mean, like, our, I don't know if we're gonna, we'll, we'll talk about that, but yeah, it, it's intentionally done, and uh, the reasoning why is made pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. I'm looking, for, I'm looking forward to that. Let's see, so you're at the railway station, fight with some possessed stuff. This is, this is the bulldozer, right? Yeah, it's the oh, ghost bulldozer, man. <laughs> it sucks so bad. I found it very yeah. easy to circle strafe. Like it, it is a little bit, but like until you get rid of all the other guys that come out trying to jump you, it's uh, irritating when you're focusing on them and they just get like run over by a goddamn bulldozer. This is where I saved all my flash grenades. I think at this point I had like three yeah. or four. Yep. I used <laughs> all of my flash grenades, and then uh, I just sort of circle strafe the bulldozer until it was gone. I think there was like a pole in front of me in the bulldozer, so I had to hit it like eight times before it turned to get me. <laughs> so that worked out pretty good. Yeah, I imagine like this part with these flying things is just frustrating because they take so many batteries and so much light, like make them disappear. Man, and it was at this point, like also, that I just started thinking back in like bloodborne terms of notes, like use of terrain is effective, <laughs> things like that. Like <laughs> because there's so many parts in this level, especially where you can like hide ever so slightly behind a tree or a signpost that somehow can stop you know this giant piece of pipe from hurtling through the air and hitting you in the face. Yep. Yeah. Well, after this, you escape. You get you get a truck. And it's you daytime. zoom off. It's daytime, and you still hear Pat on the radio. He's just like Yeah. I wasn't sure if it's supposed to be like early in the morning, like maybe six, seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, like the sun is like light. just coming up when you are finishing the fight with the bulldozer. So then you're you leave and you go on your way to the coal mine. So it was at this point that I made a realization, right? At no point do you ever see Alan Wake actually eating anything, right? I mean, like not that you normally do in video games unless it's Red Dead Redemption Two or something, but you do pick up a shit ton of coffee thermoses. So like any good writer, he's existing solely on coffee. He has had no solid food. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like made that connection. I was like, uh-huh. All right. Probably not intentional. It might have been. I don't know. I'm assuming it is. Remedy is very smart that way. But it was fun. And I laughed. And I just started thinking about like the coffee shits he's going to have at the end of it. And just, oh. Man. Oh, God. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> that's when Thomas Zane talks to him when he's passed out on the floor of the bathroom. <laughs> Yep, this is where my mind goes. <laughs> the darkness. <laughs> I did. So when you're driving the coal mine, I don't know if there's other parts, but you can just like take any car. I probably <laughs> switched like four cars. I'm like, I'm gonna stop this building, see what's in there, and take the car that's outside. Yeah, Far I don't know. Interesting they... for haunted town. I don't get it. I don't know if they expect you to like trash every single car you run across. I mean, the driving physics are not great, so I could see how you could lose cars kind of easily, because I'm pretty sure every single car I had, I lost the, the bumper off of. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's pretty funny that there's just, like, cars everywhere and you can drive them all. This whole section kind of reminded me of, like, the earlier demos of the game, uh, when, like, the back before it was sort of more linear, uh, and it was, it was more open world, and you kind of spent time in Bright Falls during the day, and then you would have to, like, hole up at night. Um, yeah. like early screenshots of the game I remember sort of a lot of them had this vibe where it's like it's sunny Pacific Northwest and you're driving around the town in like you know a station wagon or whatever uh, I really like it a lot I like, the, I like the vibe a whole lot 
I yeah. wasn't sure if the one thing I thought of with the cars and there's a lot of crash cars, a lot of working cars. Oh, if this is like, hey, this is people who are normal, maybe work in the mine, work in the museum. The darkness took them. It's like, hey, their cars are just left here. Well, it's kind of uh, hinted at, I think, and I don't know if you got it in this one or if it was a previous one, but in one of the manuscripts, it talks about like, the hunters that are out there that are getting taken, like they're sitting around a campfire. And then they just that was get, this like, one, this episode. Yeah, so it, it makes me think like maybe these are supposed to be the cars of people that have been possessed, right? And also, did you guys notice, and again, I could be putting way too much on this, but I'm going to assume not, one of the cars you come across looks just like Sam Raimi's car from Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, Spider-Man from Hell, or Drag Me to Hell, whatever it is, like, the yellow car, I forget what type it is, but like, I swear to God, it's one of the ones that you can pick up and drive in this, in this section of the game as well. Like a station wagon? No, it's, uh, let me see if I can find a picture of it. That would be pretty funny. I like that as, as an idea. Uh, this guy, right? So this yeah, is the Sam Raimi car. Yeah. And let me see. Yeah, so essentially you you can find that car in the game, and you can like drive it in one of the sections. Because like like you were saying, you know, I get out of the car, go see what's in this building, or check out this campsite. And uh, if I can find a picture of it in game. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the cool. The tan, tan sedan. Boop. Oh, yeah. That's definitely yeah. the same car. Yeah. So I thought that, I saw that, that, you know. I yeah. looked at that as like a generic 70s happy. car. <laughs> right? Generic 70s Pontiac vehicle or whatever. That's cool. No, I'm glad you made that connection. I'm sure it's intentional. And there's only so many car models you can use in the game that get recycled, but that is yeah. a problem. I mean, there's no combat in this section. You're just going from point A to point B and sort of uh, exploring the mine or museum. Going the daylight as much as you can. Yeah, it kind of makes for a nice uh, break in the tension between, like, you know, it's like action, action, running for your life, more action, calm, driving, on too much caffeine and not enough sleep. You bring up a good point, Adam. So far, it's just been kind of like... Set up action conclusion, like each each one of the uh, episodes, and this one actually has that break. It's like that bathroom moment or that kind of let down intention to, to build it back up. Yeah. Point. And it does build it. Yes. There's a whole tension in the back half. So you're over there. Uh, you go to the the coal mine, where the kidnapper said he will have Alice if you have the manuscript. You don't have the manuscript, but you're waiting for him. He's supposed to meet there at noon. Well, at this point you're armed, right? So, like, you know, ambush. Oh, you're not, actually. No, because you still have the gun from earlier in the section, because you were able to pick it up when you're kind of escaping from the whole uh, train yard on your way to the coal mine. I'm pretty sure you have guns before this part. Hmm. I don't recall. That was my assumption. It's for him, like, just hanging out, because, you know... He does say that he wants to kill him. Yes. He's got Which that makes sense for him to have a gun. And, he's not like some jujitsu jiu-jitsu expert or something like that. He's like a you know, fist fight, random hick kidnapper. I mean, essentially, he just doesn't show up. He doesn't show up when he calls you. He says, change of plans, wake. And find it. 
Let me, let me get the timestamp for this one and I'll play it. Yeah, while this is going on, my, the only thing I could think yeah. of was never go to a secondary location. <laughs> I just kept going through my head the entire time. Yeah, it does not end well. Let's see what it sounds like. Let's see if I can get this. This is also the start of maybe the hardest achievement in the game, which is getting from getting here it. to the kidnapper in under 30 minutes. Yep. <laughs> I've never been able to do it. Me neither. I try, too. I try every time. Ways of how I tortured the kidnapper to get Alice back, or the different horrible things he could have done to her. I imagined her dead. I had no way of knowing she was still alive. It was killing me. I was running on blind hope. It was all a waste of time. The bastard never showed up. Jerked around you by you. You want to see your wife alive? Because if you do, you better watch what you say to me. Do we understand each other? I want to talk to Alice. Yeah, and I want the manuscript. Don't keep me waiting, Wake. Hello? Hello? Ah! I'm gonna kill him. I had to get to Mirror P. So yeah, um, a couple of things from that. I guess uh, the character is definitely different in his interaction with you than he was during the last episode, uh, the kidnapper. Whereas, kind of Mike pointed out last time, like maybe Alan wakes the the idiot god who just doesn't know that he's in control of everything. And last time, the kidnapper was trying to like coax you into doing stuff. And now it's more of a hey, change of scenery, um, and uh, going to to Mirror's Peak. I also do wonder that. if some of it is because this may be part of the story that he doesn't know. Because he read some of the manuscript before, so it felt like he had kind of an idea of what was going on. And he keeps yeah. asking for it. Like, he wants to know what happens next. So maybe at this point, we're kind of off the stuff that he's written, and so he's a little more unsure of himself. Is that the uh, okay. cliffhanger part? I mean, is there any reason why he, he, why he wasn't there? Why do you guys think he wasn't there? I'm not sure if it's if there's ever anything explicitly said. Um, part of me wonders if it's like his own attempt at self-determination. Like maybe he thinks that by changing the location, he's taking back more control. But it was also something that was written in the first place uh, as like a contrivance to get Alan back to Cauldron Lake. Um, okay. Then the name Mirrors Peak. We talked earlier about, hey, there could be another Alan. Uh, Mr. Scratch is kind of, we know. We're, we're going to talk spoilers kind of as we, as we go through. Uh, so I thought, it's fun. Yeah, it's past, it's past its prime. Um, I know, actually, the, the game still holds up incredibly well. Uh, that's the wrong word. It's past the uh, limit of... Percy, I guess. Statute of limitations? So, whatever that's the whatever word. Whatever version. And you guys, you, you people who read, know a lot of words. <laughs> I know word stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a mirror's peak, and he's got to go over there to to get Alice. 
Well, I think that Mirror Peak is also like a definite another nod towards Twin Peaks, right? Because I mean, Twin Peaks is just amazing and godly, and thank you, David Lynch. But mirror obviously implies a reflection, right? So if you have one peak in a mirror, then suddenly there's two Twin Peaks. Yeah, that was my kind of main takeaway from that. Okay. Just anything I can do to relate to Twin Peaks, I will. I will take that opportunity. Makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing that I found was interesting sort of in this section is I think it's pretty soon after you start making your way towards um, towards Mirror's Peak from here, uh, there was a manuscript page that came up where uh, it talks about uh, the doc in town. Uh, he's examining Barry and Rose because uh, they were both found at Rose's house. Um, and there's a passage where it says, it wasn't the first time Doc had seen someone in such a state, but it had been over 30 years. Doc poured himself a stiff drink. He hadn't forgotten a thing. Oh, uh, interesting. Huh. So, like, uh, 30 years ago being sort of around the time when Thomas Zane and Barbara Jagger and Cynthia Weaver and all the stuff in the lake uh, had happened the last time. Yeah. So it's interesting to see that explicitly it's talking about the fact that he's like aware of these things and he he like remembers it happening the last time. Another thing that stuck out to me about the museum when you're escaping, there was this red leather chair sitting there. Yes. In the chat. It was it was lit up. I don't think you could interact with it, uh, but it was just there. Yeah, I remember that. That was weird. That was off putting. <laughs> I actually wrote that down in my notes, and I did a quick double check to see if it was one of the chairs from the Red Room in Twin Peaks, and it is not, <laughs> it turns out. But I think we do see this chair later in the episode, though. A different location. Now I always want to go back and see if we've missed this red chair in earlier episodes. It's, uh, a, good it's a good red chair, but yeah, it was off-putting sort of in the location it was in and also the way it was lit. Yeah, uh, like gave it like more importance than it, it had, but it was still something that you notice when you walk in that room. Yeah, it's yeah. very out of place. So then you're you're escaping. Go from the coal mine down to that big field uh, where you have to traverse across, turn off the electrified fence, which we all know is like bad times. You have to go across oh, the field in a game to do something, then come back to it. Not going to be a good time. Oh, it was hard. That was a hard part. You know, you you give me the car. You drive across. Yeah, <laughs> I lost the car. <laughs> I lost the car when I went over there. I just ran away, I think, from things. You could drive in that section? Yeah. Yeah, there was a car, car right where you uh, jumped down. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I ran across that whole field. I mean, I did too. I just ignored the car entirely because I was like, eh, let's see if there's any collectibles out here. There weren't. I, I didn't know you that. could do that. That was a hard part, though. Is yeah, like a whole that's... car that's flipping at you or something? Yeah, there's like that. Multiple bits of pipe and wheels and all the possessions. So I think a lot of this goes... This goes to my earlier comment. Like this was like the creepiest episode for me. Um, I guess two reasons. One, because there was all this tension, right? It was very dark. Um, not as much of the exposition or the talking, that kind of creepy stuff, but more just the environmental. 
you're in this world, there's stuff going on. Uh, you, m- this episode more than the others, you're out of ammo. You're constantly having to like shift tactics. Uh, there are the ones I felt like you always had enough batteries, enough bullets. It's more just executing kind of like your just normal tactical plan of how to kill an enemy. This one, uh, I ran a revolver in the middle. Uh, you're getting yeah. swarmed. You're in and out of flash grenades. Sometimes you have flares. You got to switch to a shotgun. You have the option to go from a shotgun to a pump shotgun to your hunting rifle. You have a lot of different options of things you can do in this in this episode, and that drove the tension. Also, I was playing at night, and my head headphones on, uh, lights off. My daughter rolled up on me. <laughs> she was she was like crying about something. It just scared the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my god, what are you doing here? Now it's not the time. Yeah. He's working on something. <laughs> it's homework. Um, yeah. So yeah, just to that point, that was, that was kind of my tension uh, behind this part. But yeah, any it's definitely cool- the hardest like combat-wise that we've run into, for sure. And yeah. there's more enemies, I think, than in any other point so far. Any part from this kind of traversing over that sticks out to you? I mean, it's a lot of navigating like close quarters areas that you haven't necessarily had to fight in before. Because I think a lot of the fighting before was done in the woods uh, and sort of like more open spaces. But here you're running into a lot of rooms where like you walk in the door and like four or five guys drop down from the ceiling or like closets or outside or wherever. Um, yeah, I think this is the first time that you actually had to fight indoors. Cause remember, I think it was Mike or somebody brought it up last uh, last time that you never really fight inside. It's like inside is kind of safe, but then this chapter, nope, inside sucks. You're you're screwed. <laughs> On the other hand, it's like very satisfying to get like a flare off, and then like you have four or five people around you, and they're all getting taken out by it at once. <laughs> yes, flashbangs, extremely satisfying. Oh man, yes. Uh, also, like super overpowered. I don't remember not. I don't remember loving flashbangs as much as I am this time around. Uh, but man, they are lifesavers for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's one section in particular I can think of that, like, yeah, they're absolutely necessary because they. And I forget exactly when it happens, but when you have to like go into the top of the box car and there's two possessed items in there, and you have like that little top hatch. Normally, you just drop down, then you just get wrecked by you know one of these things coming flying at your face, but. Chuck a flashbang in there, takes out one of them, if not both, and it's far more manageable. Who who climbed up to the radio tower? Uh, did I? I think so. There's a manuscript all the way up the top, and it took forever because you're so slow. Man, you paid for it on the way down. Because some damn birds up there. Damn birds that got oh, you on the, the way down. Freaking birds, man. Yeah, it sucks so bad. Is that the manuscript uh, talking about uh, one of the Anderson brothers and the? <laughs> They've got my hammer now. Yeah, oh, I'm like about him pretty much murdering a nurse. That's <laughs> like, oh well, seems kind of lighthearted in a really perfectly murder kind of way. Uh, one thing that we did find, I just posted photos of it. Um, so you guys could see, but it was uh, that room that was just full of writing on the wall. Uh, yes. Talking about Thomas Zane and his name over and over again. Like, did you write this? Uh, and then a big old heart with CW plus uh, TZ. 
in it, which more or less spells out pretty pretty clearly that Cynthia Weaver and Thomas Zane, or at least they were an item as far as she was concerned. And it made me wonder, like, why this house, right? I mean, first off, I was wondering, like, how the hell did they build this house? There's no roads to go up here. Where'd all the bricks come from? Like, but, but also, like, why this place in particular? So, like, was this Thomas Zane's house, or was it like a meeting spot for him, or something like that? Like, it was the this- big. It was like a big stone building. Yeah, like covered in moss, but it was also right next to Cauldron Lake. Um. So I feel like that probably has some kind of significance. And so you also know Cynthia Weaver wrote all the kind of the glow in the dark spray paint, then, right? This is where it's first heavily hinted at. Yes, I don't think it necessarily confirms, but I mean, like this is the first time that we have a sense that like this stuff has actually been written by someone in particular. Like, yeah, it says like you know the darkness wears her face or things like that earlier, but mm-hmm. this is like the first time that it actually feels like somebody is directly writing with purpose, if that makes sense. Yeah. She and, also seems very upset. Yeah. And a little bit obsessed in a really creepy, you know, like, misery kind of way. Were the mines before this or after? Uh, after. Okay. Another phrase here, it says, you talk to me on the TV. Yep. Um, and then on the way it? out, there's one that says, like, curse you. Yeah. Curse you, Thomas Zane. Uh, and also, down here, just, I don't know if it means anything or they just ran out of graphics. Yeah. Uh-huh. Red, red chair. Oh. Yeah, so this has that. like, is this just a random red chair that they throw all over? Or does it actually add certain parts in the game? So this kind of made me think. Huh. <laughs> It's like the the observer, you know, from Marvel. <laughs> it's yeah. like Alan Wake. It's just a chair. If only if only Alan Wake sat in the red chair earlier, he would have like figured out the game. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying the red chair might be the linchpin of the entire series, but there's a possibility <laughs> that it's been oh everywhere. Oh my gosh, does it make an appearance in the other games? Quantum Break, it's in everything. Oh man, we, we had to change the name of this and to uh, you know Alan Wake's red chair or something like that. I don't know. Just, that, kind of sense too much like one of those weird like light core uh david duchovny hbo yeah, specials, like, whatever we're going to create this huge theory behind it and the, dev- the developers going to be like Look, we just had one <laughs> chair model in the game it had 512 megabytes of ram there was not that much room on the disc <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, all about yeah, the red chair we made the so truth from... <laughs> see so from there do we go to the tunnels then i guess Oh, those are at some point. Yeah, One thing I, I do want to go back to really quick that I forgot to mention earlier. Uh, okay. So I, I forget if... I think it's the very first time you see Nightingale after he like, unloads on you in the trailer park. I believe it's the trailer park. Like when you push the landlord away and you're like running through. It's freaking bullet time, man. Like the slow motion bullets. You can see like the yeah, trails right. behind him. Like it's straight up bullet time from uh, Max Payne. And, uh, oh, but he's not part. nearly as elegant as Max Payne is when he's Not even remotely. Time. Yeah. A but I, just, call out. I just thought that was fun. I was like, hey, I've seen this before. So, yeah. Anyway, back to mines. We do end up in the tunnels. The creepy tunnels underneath uh, sort of the mountain. Uh, but concurrent and next to Cauldron Lake. 
Well, and the, there's one of those little graffiti things written in there that says the tunnel leads to the lake or to Cauldron Lake. Like it actually specifically says that in there. And uh, I don't know if you guys ended up going down that path because it's not I the direction you're supposed to. Because when you go past it, you hear Alice call out. Yes. And if you go a little bit further, you hear her call out again. If you're wearing headphones or have a good stereo system, you can tell the direction that it's coming from. It's coming from that tunnel. That is yeah. clearly not the direction that you're meant to go. And also, like, I feel like the closer, like, the further down the tunnel you go, the more clearly her, or the more clear her voice is, right? The more clearly she's calling out for you. And there's also a manuscript page down there, but you have, like, the brief vision as well. Uh, and then you jump in the water, you die. Well, eventually, like, it does take you down there to the water itself. It's just kind of reinforcing that, like, the lake is kind of the central point for all of this, right? Like, that's where this all started. The closer you get to the lake itself, the more connected you are to Alice and to an extent the darkness and just really helps reinforce that in a very fun way, I think. The end, um, they did mention in the mining, if you were reading the signs, that they, it did collapse. They lost, I think it was like 35 or 38 people were killed down there when the, the tunnels under the lake collapsed. It did used to be part of the mining uh, the uh, the mining operations. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's also full of Taken. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And also still has power for some reason. You know, that, that's fine. I think after that is when you come into another video portion. In the order of things. Uh, well, regardless, I can play that. There's like that one really intense fight where the, the tunnel that you're about to walk out, out to that's all lit up with light and stuff collapses and then the whole tunnel is just like swarmed with Taken. Yeah. Like, that like point, I thought it was like a or sledgehammer or whatever it was. There's literally a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> and then it was blocked off into, by darkness. Forget you. Screw you. <laughs> all right, and me, then uh... you have that part as you're navigating through the tunnel after that, where it's like a very simple puzzle, but still, I feel like it breaks things up nicely. It's just like, oh, it's, oh, it's a little jumping puzzle. Like you move the beams between the floors of this tunnel, and then you're jumping across them and running across the buttons and stuff. It doesn't take long, but it's nice to just sort of like break up the, the usual gameplay, which is just like running and shooting. Yeah. Let me get that video. It's a good one. That's why we can't post this on YouTube because we get copyrights. There's a shoebox filled with books and papers by Thomas Zane. It's very hard to focus, but I managed to read some of it. He's a poet, and a good one. He writes of muses and creators summoning fabulous things from a magic lake using his powers to shape the world of a realm of gods and dreams and demons, dark things that wait for a chance to slip through, wearing the flesh of men as disguise. Zane writes about himself, his girlfriend being taken over by a dark presence, about growing scared of the lake. Zane believes it's a mirror to the gaping void of darkness above, where some Lovecraftian presence lurks. I crawl back upstairs. I'll borrow these things from my story. They ring true. They fit.
I thought that one was really nice and creepy. Yeah, it also starts the sort of, you know, uh, snake eating its own tail of like where the ideas for the story are coming from, who wrote them, who put them there. Because it's like, Thomas Zane is writing this stuff, so I'm going to write them into my story, but my story is also changing reality as it sees fit. So it's like a, it's, it starts to get fuzzy for me, sort of where the actual events of the, of the game are coming from. Is Alan writing them because they make a good story? Or is he, is Thomas Zane really writing everything in a, in a sense? Because Alan took a bunch of stuff from Thomas Zane. Um, it starts yeah. to get very confusing. That many thoughts? I actually had to step away from my computer for a second and couldn't hear any of that because I'd have to adjust uh, record store Dave every single time. He's so quiet. Okay. So, so we were talking about um, he said in the video clip that I'm finding the writings of Thomas Zane. Oh, right, right, right. Ben brought up there was the snake eating its own tail. Like who's coming up with the ideas? Um, yeah, I mean, it is kind of fun because it does help kind of provide that... Uh, uh, what is it? Unreliable narrator, which I think we talked about in a, another one of these as well. Uh, so, like, I mean, pretty much what Ben was saying is like, it, it's like, really, who is responsible for this? Who, where is it coming from? Is Alan Wake just a channel for the people's ideas, or is he creating it himself? And so, I think it's just, it's kind of fun that helps kind of like stir a little bit of those doubts, kind of like just keeps that little doubt ember going in your mind. Also, because like explicitly, they will talk about the fact that in the world that Alan exists in, like outside of Cauldron Lake, outside of Bright Falls, people know Thomas Zane existed, but he never wrote, they couldn't, you can't find anything that he wrote. But the moment you go into the, into the hut on, or into the island, when you're there with Alice at the very start of the game, the first thing you find is a, is a shoebox full of uh, Thomas Zane poetry. And so it's like these, these writings exist, but where do they exist and where are these ideas coming from? Because uh, you're never sure because it's also like, you know, was Thomas writing these of his own free will or was this also influenced from, from the dark, the darkness in the lake? Um, you know, is Alan borrowing it, making it stronger? Mm. Uh, Maybe just he, they're using it to like make another return to the real world. Yeah, it's very interesting. We'll point out, uh, Mike pointed out last time, all the keys are found in bathrooms, not this time. <laughs> I forget what it's found, but it's just in like a regular room. It's just in a room. Yeah. Uh, so then I believe the next big one is getting to Mirror Peak, uh, where as you're walking down, you see a light on the lake. It says it must be a boat. Yeah, it is uh, like in the middle of the lake, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty far out. Uh, let yeah. me see if I can get a screenshot real quick. Is it a boat? Or is it the light from Thomas Zane's big diving suit that always is lit up? Like, super lit up. Because ah. that was what I thought the first time. I mean, like, we do find out that there's a boat down there, so that would kind of make sense. But... Thomas Zane diving suit. I like that idea more. I kind of thought of that um, as well. 
Yeah, I mean, me you find out that it's a boat. But in the moment, if you don't remember that, my first thought was, you know, we're near the lake, like we're getting all these hints of things. Uh, Thomas Zane's on the mind, and then he has that diving suit that's always lit up. So I was like, oh, that would be interesting. Then we get to hear, you're talking to the kidnapper. Yeah, there's some pretty cool dialogue that feeds right into the end of the episode. Um, get there. Holy crowd! We just said we had her to make a play ball. You see, you see? They got them writing for us. Kidnapper's kind of in the uh, in the air of the tornado. Sucks an Allen, but before that, runs with Robert Jagger who jumps in. On <laughs> in, and you see Alice below him, and then it's Alan Wake. Floating in the water. I do want to say the shot where, like Alan's falling, like he's pulled off. He has a flare light. It's kind of like that pulled out view where you're over the lake looking at the lookout. And you see the flare kind of slowly falling. Is one of my favorite shots in the entire game. It, it's just so gorgeously done. I'm trying to find the screenshot of it now with no luck, but it's a good one. And then. Nick Cave. Um, yeah, and very right. suddenly. It's like a real cliffhanger. It's like, who's in the boat? Oh who's grabbing my, at you? Let's start that song from the beginning. Just a little clearer version of it. That's the end of our episode. So, what did you guys think? Kind of like, I mean, we talked about it from the beginning. Uh, yeah. Give me some give me some closing thoughts. Let's start with uh, Adam. Yeah, so I mean again, uh, this is one of my favorite episodes in the game. Um, I just it really establishes the mythology, which is so much fun. The house that the, like has all the graffiti in it is one of the parts of the game that just always sticks out most in my mind. Um, I'm not really sure why that one in particular, but yeah, it's just such it's such a well done section. And I mean, again, like, the music throughout is great. I mean, God, I love Nick Cave. Um, and, yeah, just that shot of him falling from Mirror Peak. And it's the first time that we're kind of shown, like, the people that you kind of thought were in control. Like, yeah, supernatural stuff is happening. But at the core, it's essentially a uh, ransom plot, right? Like, you know, your wife has been kidnapped, you're trying to save her. Even though you're not entirely sure if that has happened, it's supernatural stuff. But this just really reinforces the kind of what you thought was going on isn't going on at all and uh it just really fully embraces the supernatural at this point and that's what makes it a creepier section as well how are you ben you know i like this episode a lot uh but i think out of the three episodes we've played so far it's probably the weakest overall for me um i think there's like a, just a couple of reasons why where in some ways i think it is a little long um, compared to the other ones, which I think are briefer and, and more to the point. 
Uh, I think Agent Nightingale as a character is confusing because there's not a lot of context around him. Um, and I think like I just get tired of fighting the. Uh, it was nice to introduce possessed objects, but it's also like one of my least favorite parts of the game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so the focus on that kind of drowns it out for me. And also, it's just like the, the next couple episodes are by far my favorite. So for me, this is very much like the the rising action before I actually get to the stuff that I'm very excited to talk about. Uh, so like overall, a pretty good episode, but the next episode is probably my favorite. So. Okay. And the next episode, just the heads up, it is called The Truth. Um, but so, so for me, uh, I'm probably with you, Ben. I think this had more like world building, but less of like the story and the plot, um, kind of the other ones. The other ones are very exposition heavy, uh, with kind of introducing your new characters every two seconds. There's kind of a little more weirdness going on over here than the previous ones, but this one just had a little more tension for me with the combat. I forgot to mention towards the end, because I just kind of blew through the video we played, uh, the kidnapper, when he's kind of, it sounds like he's negotiating with uh, Barbara Jagger, he wants to write for, we're trying to get him to write for us, so there's like another faction using the darkness, and this kidnapper was manipulating you to try to get write for them, maybe. It's kind of my thoughts now, I don't remember the rest of the game, so. But that was intriguing to add in like a, another faction, maybe manipulating Alan. You don't really know who you can trust at this point. Oh. Just and there's, there's the FBI Barry. agent who, like, is after you for some reason. Yes. So, there, there's very li- The only person you can trust, honestly, is Pat Bain. Because uh, he always has your back. And he uh, talks about it on the radio the next day. He's like, if you're out there listening, uh, stay safe, because I think you're a good dude. What about Barry? You say you trust Pat, but not Barry? Oh, yeah, Barry's a flake. Are you kidding? Like Barry is the man. Barry wouldn't even wake up. That man never sleeps. You see that Hummer? <laughs> the man of protection. <laughs> do we ever get to drive the Hummer? I don't remember. I don't remember. We'll find out. I don't I think guess. you do. No. The fact that you don't was really upsetting because it's like 90% white. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well, if anyone listens to this, I want to thank you for making it all the way through with us. Right, once again, I'm Lance. Run through you guys real quick. I'm Ben. I'm Adam. Uh, This is the Alan Wake Book Club.